Gataway, my podcast where I discuss writing, specifically today, my own writing as we continue in Surviving New America. For those of you who have not listened to the previous two episodes, I strongly advise before you listen to this episode, you listen to the past two episodes where I read chronologically chapters from my new novel, Surviving New America. For those of you who would like to support the podcast or have a vague interest in my writing, I would love it if you would go on Amazon and just search my name, Patrick Attaway, A-T-T-A-W-A-Y, and you can check out my array of novels, books of poetry, and my short stories, as well as my short story collection, Disease of Ambition. For those of you who are not new to the podcast, welcome back. I'm so pleased that you have come back once again to hear me ramble and read. So, before we get into the book, the only thing really going on with me right now is I went to the eye doctor today. I am getting new glasses, first time since 2018. Which may not seem like a long time for some of you, but before 2018, I had not gotten glasses since I was 18 years old. So, I try to use my eye insurance that I'm paying for every year out of my paycheck and get new glasses. And this time I got a a nice pair. It's not that much different than what I'm wearing now. And Monday, I get to go to the urologist again because I'm still having issues with my prostate. So that's what's going on with me. I'm in a lot of pain because of my prostate, but I am able to take some pain meds to make it manageable. I'm not in pain at the moment, but I'm sure the longer I sit, the longer I will be. You know, the issue is that I work a desk job. I have to sit in front of a computer. This is both bad for me in terms of my vision and my prostate. So sometimes I'll just be sitting here and I'll suddenly be in pain. And it's not that much fun. I've been writing some poetry lately and one of the poems I wrote recently was pretty fucking morbid. But you will get to hear all of that when I release my next poetry book. I haven't decided what to name it yet. I had a poll on Twitter the other day and the winner was Small Bread, which is one of the poems in the book. And it is related to cornbread poetry. It is actually inspired by the same professor who inspired cornbread poetry. And if you know that poem, Cornbread Poetry, from my first poetry book, you know that it is not a nice poem. So keep that in mind. But other than that, nothing spectacular going on with me. Go buy my new damn book. Surviving New America. If you haven't read Demise of the Trinity or Price of the Trinity, you're not going to be lost when you read Surviving New America. But it would be lovely if you would buy all three because they are sort of a quasi-trilogy. 
a lot of people ask me if Price was a sequel to Demise. Do they need to read Demise before they read Surviving New America, la-di-da? And I've explained this all before, but just for a quick reference, Demise is the first book. Price of the Trinity is a, not a sequel, it is a complimentary book. Purely a companion piece. But you don't have to read Demise to read Price and vice versa. They were written together, so Price is sort of like a really long chapter out of Demise. But you don't need to read one or the other to understand the other. Anyway, I'm tired of talking. I'm thinking about buying a pot filter for my microphone. I might buy a new microphone. I've been using this Blue Yeti since 2015. And now that the stimulus money's out there, uh, I might as well invest in something else. But there's nothing wrong with the Blue Yeti. As you can tell, it sounds perfectly fine. Um, I am using these AKG headphones that are less than 100 bucks. They're not expensive, but they work great with both recording and with the podcast. So that's the gear that I use. But we're going to get into Gentry McCord first today. Gentry McCord is mentioned in the first few chapters, not in Sarah's chapter, of course, but as you know from the previous episodes, or if you've read the book, Gentry is the CEO slash president of Genetic Motors, and they are putting out vehicles at a very slow pace because nobody has any money to buy cars, but he is looking to invest in the haptic mask that was designed by Mansur Sean, and we're going to be getting into that today. What we think we know about Gentry from Holner's perspective is not necessarily true. Gentry is a widower, and he's taking care and raising his daughter, Lily, by himself. Now, that won't be always the case, but you'll see where that ends up later. Lily rolls her ball across the floor and I roll it back. She rolls it again and I hold it for a moment to make her whine. If she knew I saw her mother when I wore the haptic mask, she'd beg for her own. That prototype gave me faith because nobody wants a car anymore. I'm only able to ship vehicles throughout the South. Anyone who wants a car past Texas or above the Mason-Dixon line has to special order it. Most of us just drive old Edison's hack to bypass their internet protocols. Daddy, Lily wiggles. All right, I roll the ball. You said you were bringing ice cream home today. I'm sorry, baby. Daddy got distracted. She holds the ball and pokes out her lip. Since we lost Anne last year, Lily won't let me have a moment alone. She follows me into the bathroom and turns her head when I'm on the toilet. If I take a shower, she sits against the door. Most nights, she sleeps in my bed, which I know isn't healthy, but she's only four. Each morning, I leave her at daycare. She stands at the window and watches me leave. Most men only carry the weight of one world on their shoulders, but I have two, Genetic Motors and Lily McCord. Therefore, the haptic mass presents an opportunity for me to relinquish some of the burden. My daughter needs a, f a mother figure, but I don't have time for anything but work and letty letting Lily cling to my leg. If I can take some time away from work, I might find someone for both of us. 
I have to pee, Lily says. Will you come with me? I have to stand in the doorway and look at the ceiling while my daughter uses the bathroom. Then I pick her up to wash her hands and we immediately resume whatever activity keeps her content. She gets tired of rolling a ball after about 20 minutes, thankfully. I prefer that that to her watching reruns of Spongebob on TV. Someone's going to find Bruce in that old KFC and there's not going to be an explanation for his body. The police spend more time trying to enforce voting laws and prevent mass theft in stores than researching murders. Sherlock Holmes isn't anybody's hero anymore. How'd that girl sneak in and just kill him like that? Bruce wasn't a thug or villain. He carried a shotgun to protect an asset, but I never saw him hold a gun before that night. I can't convince anybody he was a church-going holy man, but he didn't deserve to die. For the little time we knew each other, he never gave me a bad vibe. We're all trying to make money the way we can. If that girl stole the haptic mask to profit from me, then she doesn't have much to take. Of course, she robbed Bruce of the only thing he had. There's a knock at the front door. Lily runs to hide behind the couch while I peek through the blinds to see who's here. Grabbing my forty-five out of the little table I keep in the foyer, I open the door just enough to see the girl from earlier holding the haptic mask in her hands. Gentry, she says. Now that you know that I can come here at any time, hold on. I shut the door behind me. My daughter is inside. This gun is loaded, but please, don't make me have to use it. Put the helmet down and leave. Oh, you think you can kill me with that, she asks. If I were able to bleed, do you think I'd come to your house holding what I stole from you? Please, shoot me. I want to see it. I'd rather not traumatize my daughter. I'd rather not take that gun from your hand and make you suck on the barrel. But I'll bring your baby girl out here to watch. She's probably bluffing about being so tough. Unfortunately, I don't want to shoot a woman to test the theory. Letting her near the gun would be a fatal mistake for Lily, though. What are you here for, I ask. How much for the helmet, she asks. Seriously, you could have taken my wallet earlier. How much? All of my money's in the bank. I have some gold in a safe, but that's all I can offer. No, it isn't, she says. I need money, and I don't have any to give you. But you can give me a job. You want to work at the manufacturing plant? I am an asset you never knew you needed, Gentry. I'm bulletproof. I don't see how I need someone like you. Why is Bruce Tiller dead? A person able to pull off an assassination like that might turn out useful. But I don't order hits. Killing anyone for any reason is wrong, but she sinned against God. Bruce didn't provoke or hurt her. I can't be involved with a murderer. That's for you and Satan to discuss, I say. I'm not going to hell, she says. I'm in the Trinity. There's that word again. People say it without knowing the true meaning. Historically, Satan waged a war and won, but some believe he only won a battle. There's supposedly news footage of the three men that took out Alan Price in New York, but I'm not certain they ever existed. She probably heard about the Trinity and pretends to be in their little society. 
I don't know what your name is, ma'am, I say, but I'd appreciate my mask back. Then hire me. What you did was immoral, I say. If I accept your offer, I'm just as damned as you are. We're all sinners, she says. I just get to go to heaven when I die no matter what I do. Keep the mask, I say. I turn to go inside and she grabs me by the shoulder. Like a dumbass, I drop the gun and get kicked to the ground. Instead of pointing the forty-five at me, this woman holds it to her head. She's taking the bluff so far, I almost believe she's in the Trinity. I'm not sorry I killed Bruce, she says. I'll shoot you right now. That's how desperate I am. No one should be desperate in New America, I say. It costs nothing to be alive here. And that's not enough for me. Having her on my side merely delays my demise. If I don't accept this woman, she might kill me now. Whoever designed the haptic mask probably doesn't have the noblest intent in their design. And I certainly don't if I mass produce them. If she's actually in the, in the Trinity, maybe God will be on my side too. That's a lot of wishful thinking considering my daughter might be on the line. All right, I say. Just don't come here again. I can't let my daughter see any of this. Sounds like you're a good father. She reaches down to help me up. I have a good father too. Funny how you know my name and address, but I don't know you. Holner Joyner, she says. I'm going to be in your office tomorrow morning, so you can make this official. Leaving the mask on the stoop, Holner walks down my front sidewalk and closes the front gate behind her. I bet Harley Freudland never had random people show up at his door to threaten his life. Why do I feel like I just sold my soul to the devil, though? When I shut the door, Lily runs up and hugs both my legs. Picking her up, I walk upstairs toward her bedroom. If this mask works so well with me for two minutes, it might help her sleep alone tonight. I'm noticing that my writing style in this book doesn't leave very much room for interpretation. You know, with Demise and Price of the Trinity, I worked on those those novels for nine and eight years, respectively. So, I really took a lot of time to put all the English major bullshit in them. And with Surviving New America, I wanted to write something that was really straightforward. With that chapter, you can see that Gentry has really good intentions. A lot of the people in this book, whether they do good things or bad things, they have good intentions. And with Gentry... He is thinking about his daughter. He's thinking about his company. And when Holner comes up and black blackmails him, she doesn't give him any choice. She pretty much says, you hire me or I'm going to kill you. So we know what we're working with with Holner. And he even says, there's no reason for anyone to act like this in New America because there's a safety net for everyone. The economy is not great, but no one is starving. So the thing with Holner is that she's got this capitalist spirit in her. You know, she wants to be rich. She wants to live in a better place. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with wanting to better yourself and living better surroundings. I mean, if we all lived in government-issued apartments, we would probably all be miserable. But at the same time, 
would we have anything to work toward? And you have to ask, someone out there would be so dissatisfied with that that they would want to make a change in that. So I think everyone in this book is wanting to make a change in themselves or in the world in some way. But Holner just wants money. And Gentry wants to build his company. He wants to provide more jobs to people. He wants to make sure that he and his daughter are taken care of. And, of course, we see later that it's very much the case. So, next chapter is from Rodney Daniels' perspective. He is our um, quasi-Hannibal Lecter. It's uncommon that I find myself at a patient's funeral. Bruce Tiller spent a month in my care in 2093. I tried to keep regular follow-ups with him. He was always busy with some new scheme, yet he was harmless to everyone but himself. Had he kept pursuing his mental health instead of money, he might be in my office today instead of in the ground. The police found him with a broken neck in an abandoned restaurant that was popular in old America. Though nobody knows who would want him dead, I'm sure the killer didn't even know Bruce. I am curious why Gentry McCord showed up to the burial. Some guy with bleached hair keeps following Gentry as he tries to pay his respects to Goshana Tiller. Excuse me, I say to the stranger. Uh, yeah, what? I'm Dr. Rodney Daniel, I offer my hand. How'd you know Bruce? He was a business associate, he says. Well, he was also a good friend. Probably my best friend. Gentry turns to look at the man with the outdated hair and bows his head to Goshana before walking toward the gravel parking lot. Looks like I just saved the CEO of Genetic Motors some trouble. Now what dysfunction can this stranger offer me? He was a patient of mine, I say. Think you could bring him back? I believe most patients should remain deceased. Sorry, I'm, I'm joshing you. This is a lot to handle. I'm man Sir Sean. Just got from back from D.C. and had to buy my first suit this morning. Well, that sounds promising, I say. Do you work with the government? I'm sort of being contracted by the president for some work in transportation. Oh, that's why you were talking to Gentry McCord. Trying to. Bruce was sort of my middleman, a neutral party. A middleman? I guess that's why Bruce is dead. He was between the wrong pair of hands. Perhaps Mansur had him killed. Generally, I don't like to play detective and just enjoy the, the way things play out. I don't get the murderous intent from Mansur, though. Bruce spoke of his struggles with sexuality frequently. He related to me that he felt unable to embrace his true identity. So, Gentry doesn't actually know you, I say. Yes, Bruce. Since he's dead, could you tell me what you were treating him for? He never talked about being in therapy. I believe the law of confidentiality still applies. Unless you need some information that might help solve a murder. 
Yeah, Mansur nods. I'd very much like to find out who did this. I want to fry the bitch. He fidgets and sort of shakes with mild tremors. Mansur probably suffers from a hyperactive disorder, but there's a focus in his eyes that tells me he doesn't have trouble paying attention. I'd love to speak with him in a professional capacity just to discern if he's psychotic or a genius. Can I buy you coffee, I ask? I'd actually like a drink. Normally I don't touch anything stronger than coffee, but I need to clear my head. Do you know someplace quiet? Sure, he says. Follow my truck, I'll get us there. This place used to be something called Applebee's, but no longer serves food. Manser orders us some of the house vodka, which is apparently made in the old kitchen using potatoes. As soon as the bartender pours his glass, Manser knocks his shot like desert rain. I take a sip before trying to swallow half. What kind of patients you treat? Manser asks. The ones that drool or ones that eat their own shit? I work at a rehabilitation hospital, I say. I treat many different types of patients. Hold on. Bruce was in a nut house? Indeed. That's an easy thing to deduce, I suppose. As long as no one from the government is is listening, I'm not sure how much privacy I can lend a dead man. Especially if I have more of this vodka. Of course, Bruce was only depressed and considering suicide. Even if someone merely considers suicide, I want to speak to them. What were your intentions with... Bruce and Gentry McCord. Bruce was showing Gentry a prototype. Look, I'm against motor vehicles of any kind. It's like we're using an old crutch when both of our legs are broken. So, you're an environmentalist, I ask. I guess you could call me an inventor. Sounds kind of stupid out loud. What do you invent? Are you familiar with virtual reality? Manipulation of the subconscious to create realistic experiences. Am I talking to a magician? That might explain the bleached hair. It's a little long in the back, too. Given that he hasn't shaved in a while, I'd say he's an unemployed circus clown. I design what I call a haptic mask, he explains. Covers your entire head like a helmet for full immersion. A chip feeds signals through your eyes into your brain. And it works? You won't try it? I'd be a fool to say no. I can't come up with an excuse to not try it. Finishing my second drink, the thought seems more appealing. If I were to guess the signals influence the nucleus abdomens, the subconscious fires up like the subjects in a dream state. Whatever the chip in the helmet does, it probably guides the visions into more realistic feelings. That could actually make for good treatment for certain mental illnesses. Could I use one for Sarah to help nullify his fear and control his ability? How many of these haptic masks have you made, I ask? A few. All my prototypes are working about the same. How would you feel about lending one to me? Ask Risky, considering I'm trying to keep it secret before production. With Bruce gone, do you need someone to else to help get in contact with Mr. McCord, don't you? Hell, that'd be a real help. He's not very fond of me. I'm actually about to start a project that's going to put Genetic out of business if they don't roll with the haptic mask. So, I say. 
I can get in with contact with McCord, and you'll lend me a helmet. Are you beginning to see the importance of the haptic mask in the plot of this book? Because we just got a little seed of where this is all going, especially with the haptic mask. And if you remember, my original covers for this book had a man wearing a the white helmet on his head. And I told the um, artist that I wanted something that looked a, a bit like Cobra uh, from G.I. Joe. But now that these two eccentric characters are linked up together, I wonder what that means for old Gentry. Of course, Gentry shows up in this next chapter from Holner's perspective. I don't think I've had an, an episode thus far where I didn't read a chapter from Holner's perspective, have I? She is just littered throughout this novel. Gentry locks his door and looks around to see if I'm around. I wonder if he can see me watching him from his office. Sitting down in his chair, I prop my feet on his desk and lean back. Will this seem too casual? Maybe too big of a power move? I want a paycheck. Not to take over the company. Oh, Jesus. Gentry turns on the light. Have you put me on the payroll yet, I ask, or do I need to sign some papers? You don't need to do anything, he says, except sit over there. I can give your information to accounting this morning. I don't have a bank account, I say. They'll write you checks, Gentry says. Could you please get out of my chair? Instead of standing up, I roll the chair around the desk and kick the other chair over. Gentry drags it to his side and opens a drawer for some employee onboarding paperwork. What should my title be? I don't even know what I'll be doing, but I hope I make five figures a year. Is that too wishful? Do you have anyone I need to kill, I ask. Heads to bust, feet to hold to the fire. Actually, Gentry says, I do need someone off my back. I don't want you to hurt him, though. I just need you to find out what the hell he wants. Who is he? His name is... Man sure or something. I feel like his last name could be his first name. Man Sir Sean. Sounds like he really likes curry, I say. He just spoke to the president about how Gentry McCord is ruining New America. He was at Bruce's funeral and tried talking to me. I want to know why he has a bug up his ass about me. Does this have anything to do with the white helmet? It's called a haptic mask, but I don't know. Bruce was the mouthpiece for the guy who designed it. If people don't start buying more cars soon, I have to diversify what we do. I'm not a detective. I met my boyfriend, Keir, in the Army, and we trained for the required three years of mandatory military service. But it's not like I went to school again after finishing secondary. Most colleges are small and only admit a few students at a time because there are fewer academics. The old American educational system didn't give us much guidance on how to teach new Americans because it had been gone so long. Still, I accept this busy work and walk back out on the factory floor. A few men leer at me as I pass them. Outside, I take in a breath and consider how to find a man with only a name. Gentry didn't even describe him. Supposedly, the internet allowed anyone to type in a name and you could find addresses and phone numbers for everyone in the world. Anonymity 
is a blessing until you need to find someone. I know where Bruce lived, so that might be a start. A taxi stops close to Genetic Street, and I flag the little man down. Walking across town takes all damn day. Kier works with Bruce's sister, Goshana, at the Atlanta Police Department call center. They generally brush people off on the phone and spend most of their time chatting in their cubicles. Goshana mentioned that her brother knows the CEO of Genetic Motors, which perked Kier's ears up. He asked if Bruce worked at GM, and her answer felt too vague, so he told her that his dad works there. Kier's dad died while he was in the Army. She denied that they know each other since Bruce just does side dealings with Gentry. When Kier told me this, I waited for Goshana's shift to end and followed her home. Turns out that she lives in the apartment across from Bruce because his name is listed in the directory by the front door. I confirmed this by waiting by the front of the apartment building and saying Bruce out loud to every man who came outside. When Bruce Tiller came out, he had Goshana's round face and bulky nose. I'm climbing a fire escape up to Bruce's apartment. Since no one is home, I should be able to break his bathroom window without anyone hearing or caring. The cool thing about being in the Trinity is that my limbs are weapons since my bones don't break. Without turning on any lights, I make my way into the living room and find a black notebook next to the telephone. Indeed, this has many numbers scribbled in Big Nose Bruce's shitty handwriting and Mansur Sean's on page four. No address, though. If I call him from Bruce's apartment, what could happen? I don't see a scenario where I end up in trouble. If a cop ever showed up, I could take his gun and kill him anyway. Never had to hurt a police officer before, but I'm not above it. Killing Bruce wasn't much different than what I did in the Army. Who is this? A man answers the phone. Hey, this is Goshana, I say, Bruce's sister. Am I speaking to, um, Mansour? It's pronounced man and then sir, he says. Sorry, Mansour. I'm going through all of his contacts and making sure everyone knows about my brother's passing. I was at the funeral, but I didn't get to meet you, I guess. Since I'm the one who broke Bruce's neck, it feels silly to ask about my own crime, but peppering it in might convince Manster to meet me or give me some sort of lead. His voice is higher and more nasal than I imagined a Manster would have. Quite southern, too. Well, there's another reason why I'm calling. The police aren't doing much about what happened. When was the last time you saw Bruce? Oh, I saw him the night he died, Manster says. I left to Washington, D.C. right after, so... I didn't hear about it until I got back. Why'd you meet? I ask. Why do friends meet at all? I was just saying bye before I left. Did it have something to do with Gentry McCord? I couldn't help dropping in that detail. His silence feels so yummy. I could get off on the amount of anxiety I just inflicted on this man. There's nothing like showing your cards and seeing someone die on the inside. Who is this? The woman who broke Bruce Tiller's fucking neck, Mansoor. You're full of shit, bitch, Mansoor says. Why don't you say that to my goddamn dick when it's in your toothless mouth? Oh, then you'd like to meet. Give me your address and I'll take out my dentures. Bitch.
<laughs> the phone line cuts out. I have Mansur's phone number and now know that he was probably the last person to see Bruce before Gentry met him that night. Did Mansur make that haptic mask? He didn't sound that smart on the phone. I wouldn't say he sounded stupid either. Now I have to figure out where he lives or works. Maybe Goshana would know where Bruce went. Surely she knows some of Bruce's friends if they live in the same building. Leaving the door unlocked, I walk across the hall and knock on Goshana's door. With my ear against the grain, I don't hear anyone moving around. Returning to Bruce's apartment, I look around the kitchen until I find the silverware. A butter knife and fork will do. Jamming the knife into the crack next to the knob, I jiggle the fork inside the lock and force a turn. Once I get in, I leave the utensils by the door for when I leave. While she's not in here, Goshana might have some clue lying around. If siblings live so close to each other, they know each other's friends. Mansur assumed I was Goshana, so Bruce must have kept him a secret. Or they never met here. While there's not a notepad or address book around the phone, the refrigerator has a sticky note with the KFC's address in Bruce's handwriting. Since Goshana knew Bruce was going to be there, she must have been the one to report him missing and sent the police here. Therefore, she has no idea who Mansur is. Being here doesn't do me any damn good. At least I have a phone number. Maybe Gentry will want to talk to him. I feel like showing up with just a piece of paper is a disappointment, though. But I have another option. Grabbing her phone, I dial Kier's hotline number. Hopefully, if she isn't the first to pick up, I can request her. Otherwise, this bright idea doesn't mean shit. Good morning, a woman answers. Atlanta Police Department. Is this an emergency? No, I say. Who am I speaking to? We're not supposed to give out our names, man. Goshana, I say. Is this Goshana? Yes. I'm a friend of Bruce. Can you see what number I'm calling from? Her mouth opens and she inhales. And I'd bet my uterus she's staring down at her caller ID wondering why someone's in her apartment calling about Bruce. Did you hear the disclaimer about all calls being recorded, ma'am? Goshana, unless you want me to use your gas line to blow this building, I need you to look up something for me. Okay. Your brother had a friend named Mansur, Sean, and I need you to find his address somehow. How long will that take? We don't have computers, she whispers. That information isn't stored unless someone's committed a crime and been booked. Well, this was all for shit. I hang up the phone, and I'm just going to leave through Bruce's fire escape. Then there's a knock on the door across the hallway. I look out the peephole and see a man with bleached hair holding a revolver in his hand. Looks like Mansur Sean has caller ID and saw Bruce's number, which means he doesn't live too far away. He turns around with a gun aimed at me as I hold the butter knife up and swirl it in the air. This guy is wearing the most stunning brown leather jacket and jeans that must predate 2033. I don't imagine Manster would have this kind of style. And I'm jealous. Who the fuck are you, bitch? He asks. I tried to get you to meet up, and here we are, I say. 
Grabbing his wrist, he drops the gun without much force, and I kick the revolver away merely to save us the whining ears and coughs to the police. The way he shakes, you think I was wrestling a doe. Do you know how many times someone's called me a bitch, I ask? Every day of your life, bitch! Three times, I say. Are you a time traveler? Before he can finish, I punch his stomach and kick his skinny leg so he falls on the hardwood. Reaching down for the gun, I pocket it and reach back to grab his ugly hair. I can't believe you're the one who designed that fucking helmet. Haptic mask, bitch! Well, we're going into Bruce's apartment for a conversation, and then I might let you live. Well, that was three chapters, folks. Can you believe it? I did write them pretty short. The original vision for uh, the second part of Demise of the Trinity was to have short chapters and have them shorter as you got closer to the climax, but I obviously nixed that idea. But the next chapter, which I will start next week, is from Manser's perspective when they're in the apartment. If you want to know what happens before next week, shell out the 99 cents and read the book, okay? Anyway... This has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast, and I'm so glad that you decided to tune in. Happy reading.